Welcome to Masters of Business, a show that gives you real-world techniques, cutting-edge strategies, and extraordinary insights for managers and leaders who want to develop the business acumen needed to go faster and farther in their business careers. Now, here's the master himself, Stephen Haynes. Welcome back, everyone. I've created this show, Masters of Business, to guide business people on their journey to leadership success using the core constructs of business acumen. Now, these constructs are built into a business acumen canvas that you can easily download at the website business-acumen.com. So today I'm going to be speaking with Peter Moore and I, I'm, I'm reading, this is video and podcast, but uh, again, I'm an imperfect person and I can't memorize anything, um, but I'm speaking with Peter Moore who has spent his career dedicated to helping leaders of what I think are estimable firms um, in their strategic and their digital transformation. And, and whether it's evolution of business models or tech initiatives, um, what impresses me is that he has been on the front line of all of this stuff. And now he's the founder of a firm called Wild Oak Enterprises, um, which literally puts him at the forefront of transformation. And I think the conversations that we're gonna have today, will talk specifically to these items with respect to leadership and business acumen. And welcome to the show, Peter. It's really, I'm really happy to have you. Thank you, Stephen. I'm happy to be here. I am glad. I'm glad. Anyway, so when we talked about this, first of all, I have to tell you, I took more notes than I'd care to admit. I couldn't <laughs> even write fast enough. Um, I, it's like the, I, have, I was idolizing you as, as you were going through this. And um, so paraphrasing, you are um, an insightful business and leadership strategist. And what I think is interesting is that you've had a, a I don't know, a remarkable career journey. Um, the people you've known and the people you've worked with and the impact that you've had. But from a point of view of people who are listening, who are maybe emerging leaders and managers, um, tell us a little bit about your career and some of the things that maybe they can learn. And then we'll we'll weave the conversation together. Great. Yeah, no, I, I have been very fortunate in my career. And early on in the 80s, I was a senior executive at the New York Stock Exchange. And while I was there, I spent a lot of time with our CEOs of our listed companies. And one of the interesting things, Stephen, was I learned early on how hard it is for very successful, well-established companies to embrace new behaviors, new attitudes, new, new, new opportunities. And I think it was an early sort of preview of the challenge that companies, well-established companies today have been experiencing since the early 2000s of, of, the, of the vulnerability to being disrupted by either smaller companies or new technologies. But anyway, it was, it was a fascinating learning for me at that point in time. And you'll see there's a theme in our discussion that I think recurs. And then I made a very interesting kind of uh, change in my career. I went from a very high profile job in the stock exchange to being a managing partner in a four-person firm called Inferential Focus, which almost no one had ever heard of, including my parents and wife and everybody else. They're wondering, what has this guy done? Um, but we had a very interesting discipline where we read over 300 publications a, a, a month, and we identified change very, very early. So we would be a year or two years ahead in some cases. And I built a corporate practice with CEOs of major companies like Philip Morris and PepsiCo and GE Capital, et cetera. But the interesting learning was how hard it was for those senior executives to balance 
the pressure of short-term performance that investors and other stakeholders expected with really examining and putting some emphasis against long-term uh, opportunities to grow. And that sort of allowed me to springboard into my own consulting business starting in the early 2000s, where I really focused with CEOs on business growth strategy. And the learning there, which was really interesting, and I hadn't anticipated this at all, and I think this is something that applies to almost anybody who'll be listening to the podcast, is the most effective leaders, Stephen, that I worked with were leaders who could clearly differentiate between what was important and what was urgent and not allow what was urgent to take more time than what was important. And it, I see it to this day, and, and, we'll, and some examples maybe we'll get to later in the discussion will reflect this, but that was a huge. So, as, as and I have a, a, a process that we can talk about, you know, a little later on about how to do this, but it was a very, very compelling learning experience for me because we just assumed that leaders know how to lead. And with all the best intentions, they get caught in the same traps that everybody else does. And then I evolved over to the business transformation focus driven by the digital technology disruption that we'll also talk about. And then the other thing I've done sort of in parallel over the last 10 years, my younger brother, Jeffrey Moore, wrote a book called Crossing the Chasm. Initially came out in the early 90s. It's now in its third edition. It's really emerged as the Bible for startups in Silicon Valley. It's taught in major business schools, et cetera. But the work there was to work with founders and CEOs and other investors and early stage companies and say, what does it take not only to launch a new company, but then to scale it into the mainstream market? And there's a, there's a lot of, of the learnings there are the pragmatist in the mainstream market has a totally different motivation to engage and buy than the early adopter and the visionary in the early stage market. So as you said, it's been a very sort of expansive kind of journey for me. And I've certainly learned a heck of a lot more than I've taught. And, you know, I, and I'm still enjoying it. That's the fun part. I really, I'm having as much fun now as I've ever had. Oh, I, I can say I'm having the same because of these kinds of conversations. But, you know, there is this spectrum. I, don't, I wish I could describe it, but you, you talked about um, urgent versus important. And um, there's this expression that somebody taught me a long time ago about the tyranny of the urgent and how we, we get sucked into that vortex, whether urgency is um, shareholder performance or things like that. And, uh, you know, especially in really complicated companies, People have a hard time balancing that 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 which is necessary to grow and evolve, and they listen. I my cynicism has said, well, you know, maybe the short term money is more important, but what's your real obligation? But people don't. I don't think people care. And how does an emerging leader um, absorb? Th these benchmarks, if you will, of performance and say, I think I need to do different. What, what, how do they do that so that we could stop this really ineffective pattern that puts us both in, in our corporate world and our national world at a, at a disadvantage? Yep. No, and, and I'll give you two high profile examples, but then I'll bring it down to something that I think anybody listening to the podcast can deploy. When I was in the stock exchange, one of the first CEOs I got to know was Roberto Goisueto, who was the CEO of Coke. Okay, sure. And obviously, every every single listed company in the stock wanted to know how their stock was doing every day. 
Okay, but he he was one of the first uh, major CEOs who said, "I'm not going to talk about quarterly results." Period. I'm going to give you my vision for how we scale and grow Coca-Cola going forward, and that's what I'm going to talk about. Okay, another one. Uh, and I didn't work with him because because he wasn't around the time. But Jeff Bezos grew Amazon the exact same way. So to bring it down to something that any any leader can do, not only a CEO, but if you're if you're managing a business, if you're managing a function like IT or finance or whatever, what I do is I work with them around this concept of their leadership agenda and their management agenda. The management agenda is the things that their organization or business or group is doing today where they want to see material improvement in that performance over a period of time, let's say 12 months for the sake of discussion, as contrasted to their leadership agenda, which is where they want to break new ground. They want to do something new, something that hasn't been done before. Okay. So, but when I go in and sit down with any executive and I ask him or her, what are your priorities for the next 12 months? I'll get an aggregate list of those two. And the challenge, Stephen, is that, is, and I've done this with so many people and seen it firsthand, their management agenda winds up holding their leadership agenda hostage because they get consumed by this sort of almost gerbil-esque pursuit of these all these in- things that they want to get done. And you can't do leadership agenda things in little incremental bites. And so it's not only a prioritization issue, it's a time management and a thought management Okay, prioritization issue. And, and and those that can do that really succeed, I think, far beyond other people that I've worked with. So vantage point in a company, and you know, a higher level executive may be able to master this, but yep. you know, as you know, stuff rolls downhill and yes, right. the cascade or whatever, that sometimes people who are in the middle or upper middle don't know how to reconcile this. In my corporate life, I, I felt like there was this. You know, and I, I worked at Oracle and um, with Larry Ellison, right? Yeah. And so the fun, the like the hourglass effect is all the stuff coming down. This little sphincter, if you will, which was yep. Yep. horrible, and everybody else, and they're all trying to wonder, like, what are they supposed to do? Um, and you're asking them, um, be creative, be visionary, take a stand, and they don't know what to stand on. Right. It's like the sand in the hourglass yep. is. Has, doesn't allow them to get grounded. And I'm I'm trying to coach business and leadership skills and, and market analysis and all these other things that can make better decisions. And then somebody else just pulls the rug out from under them. Yep. I I, I don't know how to how to fix that one. And I think it's up to leadership to to recognize that. I don't understand how to get past that. There's a there's like the a different kind of a chasm almost. Well it it is. And and it's I mean part part of the way that I that I've I'm starting to tackle this now, and I write a monthly blog, and my blog for March is going to talk about what the headline is in the digital world, an MVE, a minimum viable experiment, is sometimes a better option than a minimum viable product. So let's take that and put it back into what you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. We're asking our people to do all this work all this time, and there's a constant flow of work. Most companies do not have a good job of managing Demand versus capacity, both human resources and financial yeah. financial resources. But the other point is, we don't sit back and say, "Wait a minute, what are we trying to do as an organization? What are we trying to achieve?" And what are we're asking a bunch of people to help us achieve that? Are we really efficiently and effectively deploying them against 
what we ultimately want to achieve. So we do something called a core and context analysis. You could do this with your emails. You could do this with the meetings you go to. You can do this with any time you spent. Core is any activity or time you spent that directly contributes to improving the performance of your organization. Context is everything else. May have to get done, but it doesn't directly um, contribute to the improving the performance. If you go through your calendar, if you go through your emails and stuff like this, you can do it yourself or you can do it. If I do it with senior executives, I, I always use their admin because they're the gatekeepers to calendars, as you know, and scheduling. And we say, let's, let's segment everything you've done for the last month or two. And I start by saying, what do you think your core context ratio is? Well, I'm about 60, 70% core and about 30% content. The exact opposite. But until they see it, so then they can say, do I really need to go to every one of these meetings? Do I need to really open up every one of these emails? No. And so, but you're right. It's still a challenge because you know, the fear of missing out and all this other stuff is there. And so it just takes, I think, your point, and I think the contribution you're making with your podcast is leaders really need to embrace this ability of understanding what it takes to get the most out of the people and the most out of their budget. And they can't do that if they just let all this stuff continue to fester and go forward. It's almost like some of these mid to upper mid-level um, leaders may not have the benefit of of what you do perhaps, but if senior people are learning from you and these techniques, you know, this core versus context, and they demonstrate it through whatever, maybe internal training or something, yep. that perhaps those people will learn this. And that also, there's something else as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, what is core? Well, core, you know, is, can be a, a doing something. It could be in terms of, um, you know, doing customer oriented research or, you know, updating your strategy or looking at performance or prioritizing your development funnel, whatever these kinds of things are, um, people have to be engaged, but they also have to have to know how to do so. Right. And that's to me, one of the challenges. It's sort of these things are, are abstract and easy to understand at a high level, but I think harder to put into practice um, for a variety of reasons. No um, question about no, no, and it's, you know, it is, you know, legacy behaviors and mindsets are, and cultures are really, really, as you well know, really, really challenging. But go back to your time at Oracle. Oracle was a hugely successful company, as you know, still is today. Of course. But they were very, very slow to recognize a fundamental business model shift from license maintenance contracts to, to uh, subscription, you know, pay as you go kind of things. And, and you know, I lived now, through that. Huh? I lived through that. Yeah, because, right. Uh, and it, yes. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, but my, the, the the issue would be is part of what I think it is, and I, I remember when I when I did some work with a woman who was a librarian at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Bill Gates would, when he was the CEO, would come to her twice a year. He would give her a big box, and he'd say, "Here's what I want you to put in this box: these papers." this competitive software, et cetera. And he took that box all by himself off to a cabin up on the Olympic Peninsula for a think week twice a year. Okay. 
a full think week because he understood intuitively he could not address big, huge changes like business model changes and stuff like that, or major market changes or major product changes in little incremental bites and bits. And so one of the things that I do with executives now is we create either block days or block times on your calendar. And they have to be a minimum of two to three hours. And they're designed to give you a tool to take on a problem that you can't solve in a 15-minute conversation. And so, again, there is no silver bullet to this. You're right. I mean, it goes on and on and on. But the companies that are beginning to figure it out and providing, I mean, maybe what we need to do is create some kind of a leadership curriculum that helps them use tools like this. Because once they experienced it, I mean, I did this with the CEO of FedEx, Rob Carter, who had no control of his calendar, and he got complete control of his calendar, and he's, he's been an advocate ever since. You know, there, there's something else. I was, there was a, a guy who was a, a, a chief technology officer, one of the big oil field services firms. And we were going, through, you know, talk about skills, okay? Yep. We were going through the nascent version of my business acumen course. This is about three years ago. And as he was going through it, he says, you know, some of the senior executives don't even get this. They they can talk it, but they don't understand how to do it. And I said, well, I think they probably feel insulted because they probably believe they know it, um, but they haven't. And I think part of it, you know, it really goes down to something some something so simple, like like the um, trade craft tradition, you know, of yep. journeymen and masters, right? Yep. That people who move into really high levels of leadership may have mastered a functional specialty, but they really haven't understood cross-organizational cognizance, cross-market cognizance that helped them build these broad perspectives. A person like Gates, the way you're talking about him, he got it, but he was there from the very beginning. He yep. understood the guts of, of that business, both by being able to zoom into bits and pieces of it and to zoom out from a vantage point that allowed him to look at things holistically. Right. And that's one of those building blocks of business acumen that's so important, I think. Um, but I, I wanted to go to, to, to something I had written this down about um, a time when you said you had worked with some CEOs and you brought them to some place in Snowmass, which is one of my favorite places on the planet. <laughs> These three-day retreats and, you know, where you encourage people to learn from one another. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and what people learned? Yeah, no, it, it was originally called the, the Human Capital Forum, and then it morphed into the Snowmass Forum, A, because we I moved there, and you know, it, it just became, but it was really, you know, our focus, our whole focus, Stephen, was how do we find the intersection between humanity and profitability? Mm. And that was a constant tension in source. But the real issue, and, and there were two things that I learned doing this for seven years that, were, that I didn't anticipate. The real issue when we started was, these were very successful companies. I mean, individuals from all walks of VCs, big companies like Leo Burnett and Philip Morris and others, and small companies. And they had one problem or they had one concern in common. They did not like the traditional consulting practice of the expert, okay? And it's easy to pick on a McKinsey or a Bain or whatever, coming in and selling them sort of what they called a prepackaged solution. And so what they wanted was they wanted a community, a diverse community of peers who we would introduce interesting new people to, but who would collectively talk it through. And so the thing that, that I think was most intriguing is 
they all got, they all bought into this thing that no idea that leaves this community in the exact form it arrives. And that's what got me excited about what I call peer-to-peer learning. So we would bring in, uh, you know, someone like, you know, Jeffrey Pfeffer from Stanford or a Clay Christensen from, from Harvard when he was there and talking about innovators dilemma. But we had a, we had a fantastic person who talked about the theory of positive deviance and how they use that to, to cure child hunger in Vietnam. I mean, it was phenomenal. But what was really exciting was to see over these three-day dialogues, this sort of collaborative peer-to-peer learning experience. And to this day, I think it's still the most effective tool around. I think, you know, I, I very often in my programs talk about um, um, whether I, some people call them centers of excellence, but I, I, these are communities of practice or communities of interest. Um, now, you see evidence in various places through social media and, and groups like that. But, you know, the first of all, the idea of coming together in person and, you know, in the last couple of years, this is hard. Yep. person. Yep. And I, w- I was in Europe last week and I was reminded of the importance of being with people and having people feed from one another, if you yes, will, absolutely. and come up with new insights and, and ideas. And to me, I mean, that was that's that that's like heavenly. And I hope that people can carry some of that away. But, um, you know, all of these experiences for you, right, you it's almost like you're the corporate anthropologist. <laughs> And I, I, I'm thought I might steal that. I like that. <laughs> okay, I, I get I get dibs on the trademark, but okay. but but that that approach, and I I like this idea. You know, when I do work with product teams, it's almost the same thing. It's there's an anthropomorphic approach to understanding markets, understanding customers, understanding people and capabilities, and you have to. I mean, for me, the core of business acumen is how do you harness that and bring it together. Right yep. on behalf of the company, so the company can learn and grow. And then I started to study a little bit about this other thing that you're working on with your brother, this zone to win framework. Right. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how how can we leverage this to help leaders think about what is strategically important? How to sort of um, chunk up um, strategic ideas and and things to think about in moving an organization forward with more purpose than they have in the past. So can you talk about that and how it can help in cultivating business acumen as well? Sure. Uh, no, when, and Jeffrey and I have been talking about this a long time because most of his early focus is on startups and mine was on established companies. Mm-hmm. And I kept talking to him about all the issues we've been discussing on this in this conversation about the challenges that well-established companies have in, mm-hmm. in making trade-offs and in, in, in different decisions. The core idea behind Zone to Win, Stephen, is if you are a well-established company, how do you find the right balance between funding the businesses you have which deliver the short-term revenues and profits that people expect and making a material enough investment in a next generation business that you can create future revenues and profits. And that constant tension, just to give you one quick example of how, and and you may know this story, in the 14 years that Steve Ballmer was the CEO of Microsoft, stock never traded over $40 a share. And you go, how is that possible? Well, the reason was when they did their planning and budgeting every year, they combined the discussions for funding and budgeting Windows and Office with all the new ideas 
and all the resources went to to the, the they had so little few resources left over they never made a material investment in a new business they had a couple of things the xbox but they had a mobile business they had a cloud business but they didn't put any emphasis behind when Satya Nadella came in he looked at zone to win what zone to win says is we have to look at our business in terms of what we're doing today and what we want to do tomorrow there are four different zones there's a productivity zone performance zone, an incubation zone, and a transformation zone. But the real balance is the ones on the right-hand side, productivity and performance, are what we're running today. Incubation and transformation is what we want to do next. What he said was, day one, we're going to be a mobile-first, cloud-first business, period. Number one priority, okay? And he said, and at that point in time, their cloud Azure business is doing about $5 billion in revenue. They were an afterthought from AWS, et cetera. He set a three-year goal of $20 billion. They exceeded it by nine months. They're now, you know, they're now a major factor there. But more importantly, the stock is trading at $280 a share. Now, I'm not saying embrace zone to win and your stock's going to go from 40 to 20. But the point, the learning, the business acumen learning was Sachin Nadell understood if we did not prioritize this new. Now, he did it because he thought he was under existential threat from the Apples and the Amazons and the Googles. So he was playing what we call zone defense. The flip of that is Salesforce. So Satya was an early adopter of zone to win. Mark Benioff was also, his problem, Stephen, was he had a very strong core business, but he had four or five or six major new opportunities competing for resources. And he instinctively knew you couldn't do more than one. So what he did is he used the zone to win, which we call zone offense, is you move one at a time from the incubation zone to the transformation zone. It becomes the number one priority for the company. And the goal is it has to be able to generate a minimum of 10% or greater of the company's overall revenues. So what zone to win has given them is a framework to have an open, transparent conversation about investment opportunities either responding to something that has been imposed on the organization from outside, zone defense, or generating a new opportunity, zone offense. Because most companies, when you give them those discussions, they'll say, well, we'll give a little here, a little here, a little here, and nothing material happens. So it's, it, you know, it's really begun to, to, take, to take hold. And there are probably, you know, probably about a dozen companies now that are really using it very, very effectively. When I, when I hear you talking about this, and I'm, I'm trying to consolidate all this stuff in my 33 pages of notes again, right? <laughs> Is, you know, when I, when I was, I'm, uh, I studied finances as a graduate. And one of the things I was always interested in was in portfolio management. And when I was in product, I was always in, interested in product portfolio. And the thing that always um, struck me is how senior leaders, to, it wasn't transparent enough for me as a middle to upper level, mid-level person, where the allocations were coming and why. Yep. And so there was this approach to business as usual, which is sort of your gerbil wheel, right? That yep. you're talking about. Yep as opposed to how could we do something on purpose to grow the business. And, and I've also seen a few other strange things like, oh, we'll put an innovation department together and we'll do this. They're isolated from the rest of the world. Or we'll do a skunk works and we'll throw pizzas under the door and maybe something right. cool will come out. Right. This is something different. 
And I, I love this. It's almost like I'm, I'm thinking of the quadrants and how um, investment money can move from one to the other, but there's some filtering that goes in, on in between. But I, I come back to my, my basic agenda is how does this impact a person's way of thinking about a business from a holistic perspective? That's the essence of this business acumen beast. Yep. And I think that people can learn um, significantly from this. So, um, I, and I'm always cognizant of time and things like that, but if you had a couple of key words of advice for people along their business and leadership journey, what are the, some of the things that you would offer them? Well, a couple of things. One is, and this may be something that other people haven't discussed, I think vocabulary is a hugely critical part of success. And just to give you one example, every single IT technology team I work with has, you know, says, well, nobody ever respects this and we don't have a seat at the table yet. Well, that's because they keep talking about technology and IT as a cost. It's not. It's an investment. And if you don't invest it well, your company's not going to be successful. So how you talk about what you do is, is really important and how you understand the impact that the way you sort of, I guess, the way I say, the way you engage within an organization, the way you carry yourself. If you're constantly on the defensive or you're constantly saying, well, you know, we're a service function here. We have to do whatever we're asked to do as opposed to saying timeout. What is it we really need to do? What's the marketplace telling us? What's the, what are our employees telling us? You know, what are our, our, our supply chain partners telling us? What are we learning? So the other, the other one that I think is really critical, and I've written a fair amount about this, is I think learning faster than the competition is the only sustainable competitive advantage, period. People can debate that, and that's fine. But those companies who really value learning and create opportunities, you can learn at any level, as you know. Yeah. In fact, the people in the in the middle and the, the lower part of the company probably have more contact with customers and more learning opportunities. They just never get a chance to have that filter up and have a big impact. I, so I that, agree. You know, that that I think is a really critical. Those those two are, are really critical. You but know, vocabulary is an interesting one, and we'll we'll see where it goes. Well, this this whole construct, even in my business acumen um, institute company. Um, working with people in different departments, whether it's IT or supply chain or HR, or, you know, even talking to somebody in BD today, business development today, um, they, people who work in their, in their silos, if you will, for yep. speak, um, they don't fully understand what their role is in a co- helping a company fulfill its strategic purpose. Yep. And vertical leadership is not horizontal leadership. And I think that you, you, people across the enterprise need to understand both horizontal and vertical dimensions. Um, and, you know, you, you say that, um, you know, you have to sort of learn faster than the competition. I, my, my expression is you have to think your way forward. All right. And thinking yep. your way forward means taking um, a, a stance that allows you to step out of your head and and try to think about like, well, what could be happening? What do you think the next move is going to be? And how do you integrate what you have learned about? If you don't have the core skill to do the customer-oriented research and the competitive analysis and the strategic planning, then you're just going to sort of be washed up in the Super Bowl of you know what, um, yeah. in your company, and, not, and, and you're sort of just faking your way forward. And yep. I think 
the real value in developing business acumen is to teach people how to think, how to connect the dots so that they can fulfill some of these things, even at a higher level that are four zone oriented or, or, or I'm sorry, the, the zone to win orientation with, yep. the, with yep. the audience. That's, that's what I think. And I think that it's our remit um, as, as guides um, in this world to help people to better understand this, which is really the one of the purposes of this show is to bring about these conversations. And like when I started it up, just like an experiment, I, I didn't know where I was going to go with it. I sort of had this inkling that we have a responsibility and it's not, you know, some, some person, you know, doing a startup, you know, by the seat of their pants and trying to get some money. It's about when you talk about um, established companies, this is where the real opportunities rest. They produce cash. They have reputation. How do they take advantage of some of that forward momentum and start to siphon some of the real money off to build them into the future? And in that book, if you remember, with some of those companies that you mentioned or that, that your brother mentioned, how could they not see it coming? Yep. Well, and you're right. And I think I think one of the great opportunities your focus has is one of the one of the primary ways. And this again, what I like about what you're doing is it's not just at the top of the table; it's across the organization, which is critical. One of the fundamental questions I do with almost any group I work with is the question is where is the trap value in your company today? And trap value is where we're spending time and resources for which we're getting little or no return. Every single individual can answer that question. You go into a bank and ask a teller, she or he or she could answer you that question. So it's not like I have to be a senior manager. They see it every day. Every systems person, every developer, every engineer, every person in, in, in HR and other places like that, they see it. And so ask them. And it's, it is amazing how much you can recover and then redeploy against things that you either want to do or you know aspire to do but don't have the resources or budget to do it, you can self-fund it. So if you think about this, people who are, let's say, middle and upper middle, who can take the initiative to see these things, gain some of these perspectives, and then start to share it, not hold it inside your own head. Exactly. Share it, right? And you you raise yourself up a little bit you gain a little bit of visibility because a little bit of height gives you a better vantage point and a little bit more height and more conversations you're you're becoming a teacher inside of the organization okay yep absolutely that's the practice but a person has to recognize that that is what the responsibility is others who just want to take direction and do tasks that's fine. I'm yep. talking about a different layer of of opportunity. The you know the better cream, if you will, that yep. can rest the surface and serve as the future C-suite um, people. Yep. This is where I think the opportunity is. Anyway, I, um, I we could just go on forever, but um, <laughs> you know, I have to sort of wind it up someplace because one of my goals was to not create extremely long podcasts, but to make them like you can you can listen to them in your spare time without having to get sucked into a, a rabbit hole. But um, I am uh, profoundly grateful for your insights. You have taught me a tremendous amount. Um, I hope to learn more from you in the future, and I hope that people who will tune in um, for other editions of Mass as a business will really gain from this. So thank you, Peter, for joining us today and for everybody out.
out there, please tune in via um, YouTube or your standard podcast platforms. Tell your friends and join us next time for another episode of Masters in Business. I'm Stephen Haynes. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Masters of Business with Stephen Haynes, a podcast that captures the ideas and lessons learned from thinkers and leaders in business. If you'd like to take your company to the next level, consider the courses and books from the Business Acumen Institute. To learn more, go to business-acumen.com.